Today we are touching on decoloniality and African metropolis, asking how we can build and preserve our African built environments. So we have Kukua, Manfil, Tulisa Cindy, and also Niliswa and Zeba. And we're going to be talking together about all these different negotiations in place. Kukua Manfor is a trained architect and researcher who creates studies and documents architecture in Africa. She is a visiting postdoctoral scholar at the Centre for Advanced Study in the Behavioural Sciences at the University of Stanford and a postdoctoral researcher on the African State Architecture Project at SOAS University of London. Through her Kwa archive project, she has digitised a collection of endangered historical and architectural material pertaining to architecture, construction and urban regulation in Ghana. She also curates Adansisem, an architecture collective that documents Ghanaian architecture theory, research and practice and co-founded and runs Sociarchy, a social architectural enterprise that advocates for and provides architectural services to people who ordinarily cannot afford architects. Room 19 is a factory, was founded in 2022 by Tuki Mbalo, Tandaka Mgani, Meliswa Nzeba, and their lecturer-turned-colleague, Tulisa Sindi, founder of Unit 19 at the Graduate School of Architecture, GSA. Room 19 is a factory, is a cross-disciplinary architecture collective that approaches existing spatial philosophies as metaphorical ground conditions that render linear constructions of time or the Western chronopolitical imagination. Through culture making, their practice speculates about liberating those grounds from their chronopolitical captivity. Some of their works include a current three-month installation as librarians at the Barbarian artist and activist Kazani Churi, the Library of Things We Forgot to Remember in Johannesburg, South Africa. The exhibition will act as their backdrop to host US Professor of Humanities and acclaimed author Tina Kemp. Two of the collective members are currently exhibiting their works at the Fada Gallery exhibition entitled Situated Making, alongside a range of Johannesburg multidisciplinary practitioners from across several design disciplines. They are also due to feature as delegates at the Pratt Institute of Architecture's AHRA conference in New York, USA in mid-November. So the subject that we're going to be talking about is very much going to be touching on colonialism. And it's a very complex, violent power structure that transforms a people's way of life. Colonialism is also the in- invention of dominant forces that have conquered, fought and brutally dismantled tribes, cultures and vital knowledge. Woven into this is also dispossession and transfer of economic resources from those who are indigenous. Aspects such as exploitation, domination and repression highlight how unequal our power structures are and how reliant we can become on these due to the extraction of land, resources and even wealth. Colonialism is fundamentally about taking and not trying to understand the power of foraging ties, respecting those before us and giving back. So my first question to all of you is, there's so many spaces in a built and natural environment. Where do you see yourselves and how do you think coloniality and decoloniality has played a role within this? So I, I, see, I see myself as doing a lot of straddling kind of work, straddling physical space, but also kind of like metaphysical mental space, because like my work is around memory and archiving um, and and preserving and collecting. So some of this is physical, it's tangible, but also a lot of it is intangible because I'm sometimes looking at buildings that don't exist anymore. 
um, because they've lost to um, ravages of time, whether they've been demolished or just slowly decomposed over the years. But then also sometimes I'm looking at buildings that actually never existed, but people dreamed of building, dreamed of making, um, because it would reconnect them to a certain point in time that they, they lost and want to go back for. So yeah, I see myself straddling physical space and metaphysical mental spaces as well in these fields of memory and collective remembering and preservation. Thank you, Kikua. Um, so I started teaching around the same time that in our context, my name is Lisa's context of South Africa, they started the Fees Must Fall movement. So this was by the students and it started with the students at Wits University um, in Johannesburg and it spread across the country and then, you know, kind of allyship um, spilled over into different parts of the world in support of our students. And this took place over a couple of years, about two or three years. Um, and so I was an incredibly young teacher that was starting out. And also along with Fees Must Fall, which was what started it, it was the impetus to all the other movements that followed on from it. Then they started speaking about Roads Must Fall, which was a challenge to the built environment about um, how our architecture still reflect colonial orders. Um, and then what followed on from that was um, discussions around decoloniality. What are, what are we teaching our students? Um, and what are we basically founding their understanding of the world upon? Um, and so that gave us great leverage. Um, and, you know, I started my teaching at the Graduate School of Architecture. So it gave us great leverage to really take on those questions and to try to make sense of how to forge uh, futures in relation to the questions that this new generation of practitioners um, are asking. And so I think fundamentally at the moment where my spatial practice sits um, is within quite an experimental space that works at several scales at once. So it engages ideological constructs in which we build, but um, on the other end, it also engages the very intimate scale of performance and ritual and um, embodiment. And it definitely overlaps uh, with some of the points before I made, you know, in the sense that it also deals with archiving and memory and so on but you know it does so for instance through how the body remembers um, or how it acts as a tool of memory um, and how it informs the way that we um, we locate ourselves in the world the way that we travel with our geographies embedded in the way that we perform and we take our geographies with us um, yeah so so it's been really um informed by quite a lot of the turmoil that was present at the time that I started teaching that was also overlapping with the questions I was asking of architecture anyway. And so it just created a really nice space to to carve out um, something in the industry. Yeah. Um, I think on my side, you know, just in light of the context that Talisa has given us, during that Fees Must Fall movement, I was in my third year of my undergraduate degree. And it was around that time, and this was at the University of Pretoria, and it was um, around that time that I began to reckon with the fact that it was an institution um, that didn't have space for the types of questions that I was asking. 
And so I began to look outside of the University of Pretoria for spaces where I would be able to ask these questions and also have um, them nurtured. And so I then looked to the Graduate School of Architecture and ended up joining um, Unit 19 under um, Talisa's supervision. And it was in Unit 19 where I was given the tools and the language um, for making sense of these questions that I wanted to ask. And so, you know, being a recent graduate and now, um, you know, establishing, you know, my ways of practicing, where I sit now is very much um, in an exploratory place as well. But also, yeah, in a, a space of wonderment where I can't say for sure what it is that I'm doing, but that I'm open to um, yeah, experimenting with these you know, different ways that I've learned to make. Amazing, amazing. I think another thing to, I guess, highlight in this as well is like in the context of specifically maybe looking at South Africa, how, yeah, how was it like to teach Talisa? especially with all these uprisings? I think maybe the, the GSA might not have experienced as much of the pushback from students because, you know, our fundamental intention was to, to root the syllabi in a notion of transformative pedagogies, um, where other um, schools of architecture around the country weren't necessarily overtly pursuing that. Um, you know, because uh, Leslie Loco, Professor Loco, started the school. And so that was the kind of offering that she proposed um, as a GSA, that that is something we should endeavor. Um, and so I think what we experienced, I, or at least I'll just speak for myself, what I experienced was um, incredible possibility and incredible freedom. Um, and I think it, it was strongly contrasted against you know, a lot of the other spaces that I was going to because, you know, I work as an external examiner in different um, institute, institutions across South Africa. And, um, yeah, just the level of freedom that was afforded to, to students at the GSA was really phenomenal at the time of great upheaval. So um, I think it was already starting to show, you know, how, how different the character of the school was. What legacies, Kukua, are you aiming to build and how has your cultures influenced the way in which you design and archive and build these typologies of memory? So I don't know that I'm trying to build legacies um, or I'm actively trying to do it or consciously trying to do it because I I find that I shy away from from that kind of 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 thinking, um, I'm, I'm not fully resolved in, in where I want to move in that direction yet. But there's something just so colonial, and I also say patriarchal, about how architecture is framed now. It's about imposing, it's about, I don't know, like terraforming, right? Like making, making yourself or making whatever you're building kind of there and last forever and forever so the whole world may look upon it and see your greatness. Which just like on a, a, a personal instinct, instinctual level, I just don't really relate to. So maybe this is a bias of mine. Um, and one thing that 
I'm really drawn to in like studying um, and researching histories of pre-colonial architectures and building technology and forms was that impermanence was built into it. Um, so for instance, um, like I studied the ancient um, city of Kumasi, which is much different from what exists now as the capital of the Ashanti region in Ghana. But this ancient Kumasi, if you read kind of white explorer or white uh, white architecture scholar accounts of this place, um, like they, they talk about the beauty and everything, but then they say, but a lot of it was built in earth, so it doesn't exist anymore. Um, but then I'm studying and it's kind of like that was the point because they do have stone. So, th so for instance, there's a, a, a king who was trying to challenge the, the queen of England and he built a stone palace to show that he could. So, so this material was available. They could build these kind of permanent forms. And in, in the end, this, this building was blown up by the British when they looted the city. But the building in earth, the building in wood, in materials that over time would rot and return back to the earth, I think was intentional. It wasn't because other permanent forms were not available to them, but they very fundamentally understood that maybe how we build should not be to radically change the face of the earth in a way that cannot be recovered but a way that could, when necessary, melt back, uh, melt back into our surroundings and not, yeah, just transform and hurt the earth too much. So this is like a very long roundabout way of saying that like, I just try to have this approach in, again, to different levels of success in, in my scholarship and my practice, like as lightly as I can touch as possible, so that it's not so much about me, but about the collective um, or the greater, yeah, the greater earth or the greater world or the greater collective. So I'm the same question to Lisa and Lisa, like, how does this resonate? And also like, yeah, what does is, what is building a legacy mean for you? Um, firstly, Kukua, I love hearing your responses. <laughs> They're so thought-provoking. It's really wonderful. I think I'll also speak, you know, between Unit 19 as a studio at the GSA and Room 19 as a factory, just because Room 19 as a factory emerged from um, the ideologies present in the, the um, academic studio. Some of the overarching questions that we've been asking in the academic studio has been um, about ways to firstly even give language to other ways that space making has happened. Um, when uh, there has been threat to the ability to make space. You know, so again, thinking of a context like South Africa where a lot of displacement happened um, uh, and, and also not being able to really settle, you know, so historically not being able to own property, not being able to go back to the land that one came from um, and being rendered uh, nomads of sorts and um, kind of trespasses um, as they moved through spaces that then became territorialized, um, it, there was a, a strong disconnect from the ability to build long-lasting things, long-lasting spaces. Um, and so a lot of the way that space became negotiated, again, was through the body, through firstly the ability to, to perform things into, into existence, the ability to appropriate and to, you know, to 
perform as a way to appropriate space that wasn't meant for certain practices. Um, and so we've found it really important to first and foremost language that as um, very active and ongoing practices of space making, um, but also to offer that as ways of um, projecting futures that might otherwise um, have not been given space or the capacity to exist as you know a projection of futures. And so what we found really important um, is to first make sense of things that have insisted on not dying, you know, through um, memorializing it through performance and through the body. Um, and then <clears throat> and then also, um, what it means to perform alternate futures other than the ones you're offered, um, which is a, a kind of legacy making in itself. Um, but that's kind of been um, where the studio has, or the academic studio has rooted its its questions fundamentally. Um, and, and also through, you know, state service infrastructures such as religion or an idea of God, a collective idea of God, a collective idea around violence and defense and so on, how those inform um, how our body performs, how we occupy space in relation to territories and violence and so on. Um, and so, yeah, it's been, I think, through that that we're, we're making sense of it. And then through the practice of Room 19 as a factory, um, we, we make sense of what that means, which isn't always built architecture and built infrastructure. Um, yeah, and so that's that's been kind of how we've been making sense of it. Um, so I really resonate quite deeply with Kukua's answer. Um, in my own practice, I've really tried to make sense of what it means or, you know, how to make a quiet impact in the ground, in space, and even in the ways that we um, map space. Because I feel that there's something really powerful um, about being quietly disruptive. And, you know, in the methods um, that I use, you know, performance, and I also um, use child's play in my practice, Part of, um, you know, performance and child's play is because I am actually always thinking about legacy and the role of childhood in knowledge transferal and the transferal of ideologies through performance and in, you know, and how we embed um, certain you know, ideologies um, in people in childhood already. And so in making sense of that, I always want to um, approach it with a, a very light touch. Because when I think of these concepts, in my mind anyways, um, they're quite ephemeral um, and difficult to grasp. And so I find it counterproductive to engage with these concepts in, uh, yeah, like in the loud, um, you know, I'm making a, you know, concrete, yeah, proclamation or declaration. I think the quietness is quite interesting because I think when you think about sometimes 
leadership, sometimes it can be quite assertive. And I think the quietness or movement building, system building aspect sometimes doesn't really take into account the quietness or the solitude required. This kind of lends on to like this other question I have about the violence that comes into coloniality and the trauma. And I guess in looking at kind of like the silences as well, like how have you in the past forced spaces to alleviate any of this kind of tension um, of violence, um, whether it's, you know, different impacts of that, especially when undertaking the work? And how have you been able to collectivize? Yeah, I think that's a really uh, great question to reflect on. Um, and I think it'll move somewhat between personal experience and also just, you know, the, the nature um, of architecture. Architecture is inherently a violent act. You know, the way that we uh, um, reconfigure the ground, um, you know, we kind of scar the ground in order to make any kind of architecture happen. The level of impact it has due to the level of permanence um, that it has or even the weight um, over time on the spaces that it transforms is significant. Um, its level of permanence is, produces such a strong contrast between the natural world and it. Um, and so I think and I'm, I'm really reflecting as I go, but it's just making me think that, or wonder at least, whether part of the, the safety that um, Unit 19 as a studio presents is to suspend the pressure to, to practice through such violent means, um, to just perhaps start asking um, other questions for the moment about space and if it takes you back to that form of practice and so be it, but if it doesn't, um, it doesn't. And, and even the way that we get feedback, sometimes we feel an incredible pressure to get to the building already. Like, just get there. Like, stop asking <laughs> all these questions. Stop researching, like, where's the building, though, you know? And so, um, and it's not that that material form doesn't manifest, it's that it might not necessarily immediately be visible. Um, or, or it might not easily be languaged as buildings. Um, um, another as well is um, because we work with incredibly um, traumatic histories, um, and this, this wasn't even on purpose, but we've ended up finding ourselves playing a lot, you know, so um, working through nostalgia, working through toys and games, um, and we, we really have a lot of fun in the studio. One would be quite surprised, actually, at the, the level of traumatic um, content we work with in relation to how much fun is also present. And I think um, there's also something maybe important about not taking oneself too seriously, which play affords as well. And, um, and I think architecture or the architecture industry is something that takes itself incredibly seriously. Um, it is so incredibly bound to economic systems, um, things like job creation, you know, resource management, all those sorts of things. Um, and I think there's something also perhaps nice about suspending that sense of, of seriousness and professionalism that's associated to, to um, the architectural discipline, which ties itself into capitalist ideals as well. 
one, one thing I find really inspiring about your work um, with Room 19 Water Factory, Melissa and Tadisa, um, is, is how much time, which I think is really important, how much time you're, you're putting into even understanding the specifics of the coloniality um, before jumping into the decoloniality, um, which I think is important. And I think sometimes people don't pay so much attention to, because it is incredibly important to kind of, um, to share the work among other, um, across and among other regions that also were colonized sometimes by the same, um, the same um, empires. But that's just a specificity, right? So the colonial experience in South Africa is similar in some ways, but also very, very different to colonial experiences in, in, in Ghana. And then when you disaggregate like into particular regions, particular towns, particular villages, there's like a very granular specificity, which is also important to understand. So this is a thing I find inspiring about work, like get into the specifics of how it's happened before thinking of ways to counter, um, to heal, to play, right? Um, so another thing that I pick on, which um, I don't know if it's a colonial thing per se, it certainly wasn't helped by being colonized um, and kind of related to this, the idea of like terraforming and master planning. It's like just this, individualism and this this need to be the first to have done something or the only to have done something that I just find very jarring and unhelpful and unproductive. Um, so a thing that I also try to, to counter that with is like going to the collective, like making a thing collective communal and, and not highlighting one single hero who vanquished everything and, and, and saved the day when you're reading like kind of canon about histories of architecture in all of Africa, like you're, you're saying it's not architecture for many reasons, but one of the reasons is that it's not architecture because there are no architects or no known architects, no named architects. Um, so this is why they would talk about, um, what's his name? Uh, ooh, the Egyptian one whose name has just escaped my mind, but like that's an architect because that's a name stamped on the building. But when there's no name stamped on the building, then clearly there's no architecture. But there's like groups and, and, and clans, families of builders who are who have expertise and specialized knowledge that they, they pass on from generation to generation. And again, the the not having one name is also the point here. Maybe that's the point that we we come at these things from the collective, we come at these things communally, and there's like a strength and power in that. Um, which we lose when we try and make it about the the individual and like making one individual um, special. So that's one of the things that like really makes me lean towards like collective work and, and approaching something from a community and thinking how it affects the community um, and how we can ground it in a communal approach, but also understanding the importance of like individual leadership sometimes. Exactly. I I also think that like it's almost quite weird for certain empires to look at things from a sense of okay, this is a communal effort um, rather than an individual effort. And I think because within a lot of empires, they've had to go through this understanding of measuring something. Like they always have to measure 
Um, and that kind of defeats the purpose of the actual um, outputs, especially when it comes to design, especially when it comes to building spaces. And I think it does have kind of like these impacts and effects because I think on one hand, you have this entirety where there's this whole award system that comes with it as well, uh, where it's always, again, about the individual. Um, and there isn't that understanding of like, oh, you know, in order for this to have come about, it has taken an entire team. And there are many people that, you know, are not recognized within that. So how do we, I think one of the questions that I think about quite often is like, how, how can we enforce better ways of um, acknowledgement, recognition, but also really understand that like this work is never ever going to be like a one person job. Um, because it, even when you think about the ways in which, you know, an individual has learned lessons, it's from other people, um, unconsciously or consciously. Um, so I guess it's also about recognizing, you know, the, the traditional kind of aspects of oral traditions as well, how not everything's going to be written down, but things are going to be translated in ways in which, um, the next generation or the elder generation are able to, are going to be able to understand, which can transfer that knowledge and transfer that work. Um, one thing I do have to ask as well is like in the height of the pandemic, we were definitely like thrust into a lot of digital spaces. And I feel like this definitely transformed the ways in which we build, we work and we live. In this kind of space of two years, what has challenged you the most and also what has inspired you the most? I actually spent the past two years doing my honours degree and master's degree online um, because of the lockdown. Um, and so what I experienced was um, a very, you know, we had to make a really quick recalibration to um, working online, which initially was um, quite challenging. Um, but in my reflection of the past two years, um, you know, reflecting my own work and in the work of my peers, what I was actually encouraged by was that we were able to um, thrive. I think the work of the studio was able to thrive um, in the digital realm, which is sometimes, you know, not something that you would expect, especially as architectural practitioners. Um, but what was encouraging about it was that for me, it, um, what it meant was that the ways of making sense of practicing are malleable and flexible enough to adapt um, to different um, contexts and to different conditions. And I find that so encouraging because when you look at our, you know, the conventional ways of practicing, those ways were, you know, always were constantly at odds with the um, lockdown um, situation. And so if anything, it was an indication that um, you know, there's something that we're doing that's right. Just to extend on what um, Elise was highlighting, so um, Unit 19 started in 2020. So the year of the pandemic was our first year, um, which was incredibly nerve-wracking because, you know, the GSA had been, had been running in person all the years before. Um, so although it was at least... Um, 
good in the sense that we didn't necessarily have a precedent before of running for many years in person and then somehow having to translate it online, there was also still something quite unnerving about needing to make sense of how to teach architecture online. Needing to, to teach about space and things that are, you know, a three-dimensional three dimensional conceptualization through flat surfaces and screens. Um, so I think there was that aspect that was really um, just daunting and overwhelming because everything required translation. Um, so how the year was in initially designed needed to be translated and converted um, through these other platforms. And I think the biggest, like fundamentally biggest challenge was access to scale, to, to a sense of scale. Because, you know, the screen flattens everything. And, you know, often we think that a model is so much bigger than it is. Um, and then when we finally see it almost close to the end of the year in person, it's just nothing like we thought. So there was, um, yeah, just really interesting um, gaps that were present, particularly around scale that we found really interesting. Space. Um, what I do think it offered, though, that I think was really amazing was that it offered us some, some degree of isolation where we could think freely without feeling too um, overwhelmed by everything around us and the kind of regular pressures that happen in a space like an architecture studio and in a unit system there's you know, quite serious pressure between different units and we were a brand new unit so it's not necessarily like we had a portfolio to to show for um, you know for what we were capable of or what we do or what we aim to do and so it was it was helpful to be able to to work in what felt like you know a cocoon how do we move forward as design historians urbanists builders spatial practitioners architects multi designers landscape researchers planners and ecologists like and the list goes on and on and on I think the opportunity, I mean, besides the immense losses and the trauma and the tragedy that was also present, I think it did also offer us an opportunity to ask questions about the way that we live, that we might have um, understood as an unchangeable norm. And I just wonder if, you know, there'd be potentially other moments like this that constantly are um, offering us an opportunity to rethink ways that we practice, ways that we build systems, ways that we build institutions. I think if I can jump in, what I actually also find interesting about that is there at least appears to be um, a push, um, maybe not by everyone, but by some, um, to start considering, um, you know, the post-Anthropocene. Um, and what I think is so interesting about that is that what the pandemic revealed is that we're nowhere near a place where we can start imagining what um, the earth looks like without human intervention and so you know when you ask the question of like where do you see us moving you know as you know these different practitioners um, I think that that is a conversation I see that as a conversation that could emerge you know, what does it mean to engage um, that kind of future prematurely 
um, when we have yet to address, um, you know, the current, you know, pressing conditions that we are experiencing now. Yeah, I I agree. You know what I, I find really interesting is how, um, particularly this year, it's felt a little bit strange um, how they've spoken, well, at least in the past two years, about a new normal. And this year has been all about getting back to a normal that I'm not sure we can quite get back to ever again. Um, so there's also been something about institutions attempting to um, preserve old systems um, and I, I think, you know, to your point about the importance then of how we teach and, you know, I just say this because of being in an academic space, it's been really interesting to see, um, the clash, um, in kind of the bureaucratic attempt to keep things exactly as it was. And, you know, let's just not break anything else because, you know, it was so tumultuous. Um, and on the opposite end, after us, I mean, I mean, as a human race, we've literally survived a pandemic. We've gone through a lot, you know. So the questions we're asking, <laughs> you know, we're survivors, guys. But the questions that we're asking are informed by the trauma we've just experienced. You know, it's raised whole new questions about what futures mean, about you know the the time left we have with our our people. You know, changes our priorities. It changes our level of courage even that we're able to display in spaces like that. Um, and so I think, I think there's definitely um, a tension between human shifts and institutional attempts to not shift, to kind of be stable um, and, and insisting on being unable to collapse that I'm finding really interesting. Yes, and it's just so I just want to pick up on that that um, mention of collapse. Like I think that to me is the most interesting aspect governed by institutions. It's like it's not. It's almost this kind of weird space to be in where there are different forms or different works that maybe are not necessarily working, and instead to collapse the thing, we still continue the thing. And I just think to myself, like. There are ways in which we can we can have discourses around the ways in which, you know, students or people or communities um, learn and understand and, I guess, absorb information. But I think there's another thing to be said about just letting things be. And if something is not necessarily working, it's not working. And I think there's this weird tug of war sometimes, especially that I've seen in the past year, where it's like something that's meant to collapse has not collapsed yet. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of this quote from Ursula Le Guin, um, the fantasy science fiction writer. Um, so it's paraphrasing here, but she she's talking about capitalism and how the power of capitalism seems inescapable. And then she reminds us that, um, yeah, so for people who lived when there was a divine right of kings, they also thought that was um, inescapable. Mm. And basically any human institution can be resisted and will be resisted and changed by human beings. And this connects to um, something that Mariam Kaba, the prison abolitionist organizer, Mariam Kaba says, um, which is about hope as a discipline. So no hope, being hopeful as like this light, airy, fuzzy feeling inside you, but as a thing you have to be work at every day, be clear-eyed 
have a vision for this future that you want. And I'm, I'm hopeful, even in the fuzzy way, like the more I see, like these things I think are like the last dying gasps of capitalism because people, <laughs> yeah, people are seeing that this is not a way, like even the people who had have hope of being billionaires one day are like seeing that this is, this is probably not going to happen. And I don't think people are going to move away from wanting to have a lot yet because that's a big ask and I accept it. But I think people are seeing that, okay, we can have a society where there's a basic level for everyone, that everybody can live yes. in, comf- in comfort, in decency. And then maybe I'll still be as rich as Jeff Bezos, <laughs> which I think is a fantasy. <laughs> but there, at least like I'm, I'm seeing more and more a shift so I was like, okay, we can do this. Like people are like, because before and and then bringing it back to the UK, these conversations around the energy crisis, like just a few years ago, the overwhelming thing would have been, oh, people should work harder if they want to be able to pay their bills. But now like people are kind of be like, oh, maybe it's not okay that someone should freeze to death because they can't afford an increase in energy bills. And I think that's a big, <laughs> it's a big move and a big step. Um, we're not quite at like a socialist utopia yet and probably won't be, but at least like people are shifting towards like, there should be a basic standard of life, right? Yeah. I also think it's this understanding of like, people have created this mentality, especially just from a UK standpoint where it's based on the monarchy, um, based on this kind of work, 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 you know, back in the day, they used to call working class people peasants. Um, and that is absolutely mad. Um, and they used to work seven days a week. Now we're in a space where we're working five days a week. And, you know, I think we're, we're merging on the fronts of really thinking about what does it mean for me as a human being to live and enjoy my work and work in spaces that are actually good for my health, good for my well-being. And, you know, I think people are really asking themselves those questions. They're asking themselves about, oh, like the pandemic has made me realize how much I want to be around my family more than ever. Um, and then you're going through these spaces of loss and grief and, and you want people around you. And so I think people are really starting to think about like, okay, so what does it mean for me to be in this space and for me to work in an environment that is going to benefit me in the long haul? And is not gonna is not gonna make me feel as isolated as I ever felt in the pandemic because the the pandemic was, by and large, a, just an episode of isolation for a lot of us. Are there any last things that you would like to share, or just encouraging notes, or anything like that? Yeah, I'll I'll just share this because um, I think it's a message I needed to hear when I was a student, and you know, so when I wrote it, I wrote it for this generation of students, but I needed to hear it. But um, it was for the uh, September issue, September 2020 issue of the Architectural Review. And um, that issue was for, um, or it was called Letters to a Young Architect. And so um, a couple of us were invited to write letters. And so I wrote six letters, but there's one that continually resonates with me that I didn't even realize I needed to hear. Um, but it says, not just pardon my French, <laughs> but it says, fuck working from the margins, center yourself and work from there. Then 
do not explain yourself will find you. And I wrote that as a letter from a new practitioner's future audience. You know that we are an audience that's waiting for these new and emerging practitioners to emerge as themselves in the discipline. And so I, I really fundamentally do not believe in working from the margins. You know, if you are described and have been socially, politically, economically positioned on the margins, you can you can produce from your center, you know, as opposed to literally, you know, separating yourself continually um, or at least distancing yourself continually from any, you know, producer of canon or contributor to canon and so on. And so um, I'd just say that, and it's just such an apt time to step into oneself. You know, I think that, you know, things like the pandemic have afforded us that because I think a lot of questions have emerged that require, you know, emerging uh, practitioners to be asking and pursuing really bold and complex questions that we don't yet have answers for. Yeah, definitely. I just want to say also, I read it. I read your article <laughs> and I absolutely loved it. It was at a time where I was losing hope in architecture. So um, not to say that, like, um, I'm in that space. And I I've, I think I've mentioned to all of you, like, I've accepted personally, like, I'm I'm always going to be in architecture, um, whether I like to admit it or not. But I think just in that space of reading about, like, your work, Tavisa, at that moment when I saw it, and I was like, yeah, fuck me on the margins. I was like, yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad, and and I'm glad that you're not out of architecture. I think architecture needs you. On my side, um, it may sound easier said than done, but I would say, you know, if your audience isn't where you're at, then go out and find that audience. Um, and I think something that's important, and so just speaking from personal history. Um, you know, rather than fighting to convince those who are invested and not, or invested in misunderstanding you, rather preserve your energy and put it into you know, creating that work that will appeal to the audience, which will reveal itself to you. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Literally, it's been really, really like it's honestly been a blessing like hearing all of you and even to get us all in this podcast i'm just so blessed so thank you thank you thank you so much all the topics in this season touch back to sowing seeds of exchange if anything in this episode spoke to you at all i always love hearing thoughts and expressions that can be birthed from single collective stories as i'm on this journey to learn heal and design from this space Please note that this is also a personal invitation and not everything may be relative to you. Carving your own space is so essential, whatever that may be. Remember to follow or subscribe to this podcast and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at a and join my quarterly newsletter at www.alishamoronike.co. You can also support my work or advocacy via the different donation links on these pages. Be sure to hit up is Seven A Gang on Tidal and Apple Music. They are the fab, fab crew and collective whose music has been playing throughout this episode. All right, take care.